Specialty Story, session number 202. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week where I get to have amazing conversations with physicians about their specialty. What do they like about it? What do they not like about it? What does their day-to-day life look like? And how did they get into it? This week is no different. I'm talking to Dr. Ronnie Levin, who is a pediatric ophthalmologist. And we're going to talk all about how she went into the career and how even as a pediatric ophthalmologist, she also sees adults and and why the specialty that she chose affords her the ability to see both kids and adults in her practice. We start the conversation by talking about how Dr. Levin first became interested in pediatric ophthalmology. Great. So I went through medical school um, with an open mind. Um, I did have a preference for doing pediatrics. That was really all I knew of being a doctor. So growing up, I went to the pediatrician. And so to me, a pediatrician is what what a doctor is like. Um, So I did pediatrics rotation. I loved it. I really enjoyed um, child life. So I volunteered with child life. I worked with kids, um, in the oncology ward, but I found it so emotionally draining. Like I couldn't detach and I was always thinking about the kids and I was very sad. And then I also pictured myself doing, you know, primary care pediatrics. And, you know, while I found that lovely going through medical school, I just loved the rotations and gravitated towards the rotations where I was working with my hands and involved in procedures And so I knew that I wanted to combine, you know, my interest in patient care and pediatrics with surgery. And so, you know, one day I, I was hungry for pizza as most medical students are. And, um, there was a free lunch lecture hosted by the ophthalmology interest group. I had not much interest in ophthalmology, but I wanted free pizza. And so I showed up and the chair of the department at the time at Penn State, Dr. Quillen gave this fantastic talk and he showed videos of cataract surgery. And I was like, this is super cool. So um, I decided to check it out. I did a rotation and I found that, you know, really I had found everything that I was looking for in a specialty you know, working um, with my hands, doing these, you know, meaningful life-changing procedures where you can impact people's life and change their vision. Um, And also it was a very happy field. Um, So, you know, while I found that initial draw towards um, pediatric oncology, super rewarding, I, I didn't find you know, that ophthalmology was to me as emotionally draining. The patients were happy. They would come in, you would fix their cataracts or fix their crossed eyes. And they, they just went home happy. And I went home happy every day. Um, and I was like, oh, this is it. I found what I'm looking for. Very interesting. What are, what are some of the biggest myths or misconceptions out there around pediatric ophthalmology? So that's a good question. So the biggest myths around pediatric, well, I'll tell you some, some of the, 
one of my my um, good friends and colleagues, Dr. Ultra, she's a pediatric ophthalmologist, describes the field as part physician, part magician, and part clown. <laughs> and I would say that, I mean, I feel like that's an absolutely accurate description. So, you know, some of the things, you know, patients or families might come in and they're like, well, she's just playing with toys and she's singing songs. But I think, you know, some of those things are, are, are true. So, you know, one of the skills that you have to develop is I need to get important information from patients in, you know, a calming way without intimidating them. And so if I can sing a song or, you know, do a silly dance or do something while I'm getting this meaningful information, um, you can really ease a child's stress. Um, so, you know, I think maybe thinking that we're silly or goofy or upbeat. I'm not sure if it's, if it's much of a myth, but I know for me that works. Um, and it, you know, it, it makes the day go by quicker. It makes my the exams a lot of fun. So, um, I think, you know, being able to have that rapport with children, because it really is a scary thing for them. I mean, they're coming in, you're putting drops in their eyes, you're shining lights in their eyes. Um, so trying to soothe, soothe them and ease them in different ways. Um, you know, I've got my puppets. I have a whole bag of toys that I carry around. But I think for any pediatric subspecialist, that, that yep. works. So you don't only see children. How often do you mistakenly take out a toy for the adult patient? Yeah, I know. That's true. I actually sometimes, you know, when I, when I have an adult patient come in, I'll have like the pictures on the wall, you know, like the duck and the house. <laughs> and they're like, you know, Dr. Levin, I know my letters. I'm like, oh, that's right. So, um, but, but they do, you know, sometimes enjoy the toys. So, so that's right. So my fellowship is actually in pediatric ophthalmology and adult strabismus. And so strabismus is misalignment of the eyes. Um, so I also treat adults that have double vision, um, neurologic disorders, like cranial nerve palsies. Um, and the, the majority of the patients, I would say, you know, the majority of the patients I see are children, but of my surgical patients, they're, my, they're actually um, adults tend to need strabismus surgery more. So of the surgeries I perform, it's about 50% adults and 50% children. And I, I really do enjoy having that mix of children and adults. While it's fun to be silly, you know, and sing songs and play games. And it's also nice to have, you know, patients every once in a while that you can have a conversation with. They can tell you about their grandkids. So really a pediatric ophthalmologist, I see patients, you know, from newborn infants. So to older adults, I have, you know, patients in one day, I might see a newborn that's two days old and then see an adult who's 90. Wow. You mentioned adults need surgery more. However you, you, uh, phrase that. Is that, is that because adults don't do well with like covering an eye and exercising like that? Yeah, that's right. So for kids that have strabismus, the main problems that I see um, when children come to me are things like amblyopia, which, you know, some people call it lazy eye, but it's really the brain, right? It's um, a condition where you're not using vision in one eye. It can be from an eye misalignment. It can be from a strong need from glasses or from a, a structural problem like a cataract or from a droopy eyelid. Um, so children, you know, there's many different types of interventions. So eye patches, glasses, um, whereas adults, 
that I see that are coming to me for double vision or eye misalignment, the treatment is more often surgery. And so, you know, while some of the children need surgery, adults tend to be much more um, surgical in terms of the, the diseases that they present to me for. Yeah. So talk about uh, what a typical day in the life looks like for you. So I have um, so much variability day to day, which is one of the things that makes my job so fun. Um, So one of the important things that I do is I see infants um, that are at risk for a condition called retinopathy of prematurity. So infants that are born um, at a very early gestational age or a low birth weight and end up in the NICU are at risk for this debilitating eye disease that can cause blindness. So one day a week, I go to the NICU, the neonatal intensive care unit, and I screen infants for this disease. So I'm in the hospital, you know, seeing newborns that are weeks old. Um, and I travel actually to a few different NICUs to do this because there's very few people that are um, that, that do this type of work. Um, I also, since I'm in academic medicine, um, I also cover the consult service. So on the days that I'm in the hospital and the NICU, I also um, go to shock trauma. So I see eye emergencies in the emergency department. I go to, you know, our um, state-of-the-art trauma center and we're seeing patients with, you know, gunshot wounds and car accidents and, you know, um, patients coming in with chemical splashes in the eye. So, you know, typically one day a week, I'm doing ROP and also, you know, emergency consults. Um, About one day a week, I'm in the operating room doing surgery. And most of the surgeries I do are for strabismus, but I also will take care of pediatric cataracts, um, sometimes, you know, mass lesions around the eye, droopy eyelids in children or tear duct abnormalities. Um, and then, you know, other days of the week, um, I'm in clinics, I'm seeing patients, like I talked about, you know, ranging from infants to older adults. And then um, one of the jobs that I do, I'm, I'm in charge of medical student education for our department. So I have about one day a week when I'm doing research, um, or I'm mentoring medical students, giving lectures to medical students. So, you know, and, and that is, you know, also one of the, my most favorite aspects of, of my, my job. I really love working with the students. I love teaching. I love mentoring. And, you know, I love working with the students to come up with innovative, you know, projects and research in, in ophthalmology. A lot of students, residents potentially listening to this um, are super interested. Well, we'll, we'll go with medical students. Uh, very interested in the eye, the pathology of the eye, the physiology of the eye. Um, they're interested potentially in surgery, but they doubt their surgical still their surgical skills. How much of that do you think is is innate to the residents coming in and, and crushing it um, versus it's it's something that they learn along the way? So that is a great question. I think that is very much something that can be learned. You know, I do work with beginning surgeons. Um, When our residents from day one of their first year of ophthalmology are with me in the operating room assisting with strabismus surgery. And so I work with the very earliest trainees. 
And, you know, I very rarely find someone that I'm like, oh, they are a natural born surgeon. This is something that can really be learned. And in fact, one of my areas of interest is teaching surgical education. So some of my projects, I'm actually working with a group of medical students to, to help find ways to teach surgical skills. So we've come up with a couple different projects. One really cool project to teach how to do laser eye surgery using a simple ping pong ball as an eye model. Another project we're working on, we 3D printed a model eye that you know residents and medical students can practice suturing on. Um, so, you know, we spend a lot of time as educators teaching medical students and residents how to do surgery. So it's something that, you know, many residents when they're beginning are very nervous and anxious, but it's something that, you know, we teach you along the way. And as educators, we're, you know, very comfortable in training you how to perform the surgical skills. Um, so that's not something that I would, you know, particularly stress about, um, but, you know, if you're interested, you can just go to Amazon and get one of those suture kits and practice, practice, practice. I like um, using like a tomato peel to practice on or, you know, even a banana. So you can practice suturing fruit um, and, you know, just get, get that experience with the hand-eye coordination. But don't don't stress about that. Yeah. I, I, I remember a medical school just always doing <laughs> tying knots um, yeah. just in, in my downtime. It's just something but, you practice, practice, practice. That's totally true. And, you know, the types of surgeries that we do in ophthalmology are microsurgical. So we use an operating microscope. You know, some of the suture that we're using is thin as a strand of hair. Um, and then, you know, we also, many of the procedures we do are laser procedures. So, you know, one of the treatments I do for those infants, you know, that are born premature and they have that ROP disease is a laser treatment. So, you know, for students that are really interested in high tech, um, you know, the technology and the engineering and the physics, you know, there's not many fields where you're basically shooting lasers out of your head. It's pretty cool. Um, but we have a lot of really cool, you know, um, new equipment, new surgical techniques. Um, so lots of new innovation and things are constantly changing. That's exciting. What does call look like for you? So, Trauma call. So since I'm at an academic medical center, we all participate in trauma call. Um, so, you know, our, our residents um, will be on call. I might take call for a week at a time and they're, you know, seeing patients in the emergency room and the trauma setting and the inpatient unit and pediatrics. Um, you know, as a faculty member, the, the residents are calling me, we're discussing things, but the times that I'm going in, it's usually, you know, a ruptured globe surgery, which is exactly what it sounds like, right? So that's, you know, patients that have a serious eye injury and they're needing a surgical procedure to repair the eye. So those times that I'm on call, those weeks, they can be very busy and taxing. Um, but you know, for, for the most part, for most ophthalmologists, the majority of ophthalmologists are in a private practice, um, setting and, you know, those traumas are going to the major medical centers, the academic medical centers. And so, you know, for, I would say about 80% of ophthalmologists who are in private practice, they're not, you know, dealing with those types of serious eye emergencies and the lifestyle is typically much more flexible in terms of hours. Yeah. Now, we mentioned earlier that you do see adult patients. It's, is that 
because you want to, or as a pediatric ophthalmologist, the caseload isn't big enough, and so the majority of pediatric ophthalmologists are also seeing adults? Right. So when I mention adults, I do adult strabismus. So mm-hmm. strabismus is, you know, specifically, so my fellowship training is pediatric ophthalmology and adult strabismus. So the types of problems that I see, misalignment of the eyes, crossed eyes, drifted eyes, those happen in children and adults. So about, you know, 75 to 80% of the the patients that I see in clinic are are children, but I do see adults that have strabismus. I also, um, about, uh, I didn't mention this, but about um, one or two days a month, I I staff the resident clinic, which is, you know, see comprehensive adults that come in with any type of eye problem you can imagine, glaucoma, cataracts, um, diabetic retinopathy. So I still continue to see some of that comprehensive, um, comprehensive ophthalmology. And one of the things that, you know, many medical students might not realize about ophthalmology is that while the eye sounds so specialized and it's such a small part of the body, there's actually many different fields or subspecialties within the field of ophthalmology, right? So we have specialists for the retina. We have glaucoma specialists, uveitis specialists oculoplastics. So those are taking care of like tumors around the eyelids and, you know, cosmetic procedures. Um, We have neuro-ophthalmologists, combination of neurology and ophthalmology. So there's so many different subspecialties within ophthalmology. And, um, you know, if you're interested, I actually made a series on the American Academy of Ophthalmology um, web uh, YouTube page. You can check it out. It has um, specialties from all of the different ophthalmology um, subspecialties talking about their field. Um, But one of the things that I really love about pediatric ophthalmology is you're really the comprehensive ophthalmologist for kids. So all of those specialties that I mentioned we do it all, but in children. So I take care of cataracts in children, glaucoma in children, retinal disease in children, eye misalignment in children. So I think, you know, as the field has become more and more subspecialized, and there's so many parts that are kind of separated, um, one of the reasons that I love pediatric ophthalmology the most is that I can still do all of those things and be the comprehensive ophthalmologist but for kids. Yeah. Interesting. Do you feel like you have enough time for life outside of the hospital? Absolutely. So I think that, you know, ophthalmology is traditionally one of the fields where you can have more of a work-life balance. Um, And, you know, with what, what I do in academic medicine, we do take trauma call as well, but, you know, that is infrequent. It's several uh, weeks out of the year. Um, but you know, I have two kids, I have a a pup, a new puppy at home, my pandemic pup sky. Um, so, you know, I enjoy spending time with my family. We like to travel, go to the beach. Um, so absolutely. I think, you know, I enjoy going to work and I enjoy what I do and taking care of patients. I find it satisfying and rewarding. Um, but I also enjoy having that quality time with my family and, you know, to spend time, you know, working out or, you know, with my interests and hobbies and hanging out with friends. So it's, it's one of those things where, you know, going through medical school, 
there were some fields that I found, you know, just fascinating. Like my very first rotation was cardiothoracic surgery. And I was like, this is super cool. They're doing open heart surgeries. And I remember, you know, my first week I was scrubbed into the operating room and a heart transplant until 3 a.m. The next morning I had to be at rounds at 5.30 and I was in the operating room with the attending, you know, head of the cardiothoracic surgery unit. And he looked at me and he said, weren't you here last night? And I said, yes, sir. He said, aren't you tired? And I said, no, sir. And I was so, you know, proud of myself for having that energy and stamina And then I realized, you know, this is an eight week period, but I don't think I can keep this up forever. So I have so much respect for, you know, my colleagues um, in those types of fields, but I knew that that wasn't for me. Um, And, you know, I, I think it's very much in medicine, we sacrifice a lot of things. And so it was important for me to do a subspecialty where I love, I feel like I'm making a difference in patients' lives, but I also am able to balance that with, you know, spending time with, you know, my, my kids and with my puppy and doing other things outside of medicine. So mad respect for CT surgeons, but not for me. Yeah. So I have to ask, uh, a puppy named Sky is that Paw Patrol named? You must have young kids. I, I, I do have young kids. Yeah. <laughs> so when we, we just got our pandemic pup and my daughter um, insisted on having a girl puppy yep. named Sky because of Paw Patrol. Got to. And so, you know, we were on the wait list for a golden retriever and, you know, the litter was born and lo and behold, six males. <laughs> and she said, no, mommy, I need a, a, a girl puppy named Sky." So we had to wait for that next litter um, for, for a girl. So we have our girl puppy and she's got her little pink collar. So. Nice. That's awesome. Well, Ru- Rubble is my favorite. Um, Rubble, yeah. Sky, good Sky is good too. Um, what does the training path look like to, to become a, a pediatric ophthalmologist? So it used, it just changed. So traditionally, um, residents did a one-year internship, either in internal medicine, general surgery, or a transitional year, followed by three years of ophthalmology. This past year, we actually made it a requirement um, to integrate the programs, which means ophthalmology is now a four-year program. During the intern year, the students, you know, do internal medicine and transitional year, but there's also some ophthalmology component into it. Um, So it's now a four-year residency program. Um, And if you want to specialize and um, do a fellowship, a pediatric ophthalmology fellowship is an additional year. So I did, you know, my uh, intern year in internal medicine, which was, you know, very grueling, as you know, um, followed by three years of ophthalmology and then an additional year of fellowship. But now, you know, that path has changed a little bit. How competitive is it to match and what should students be doing to be competitive? Yeah, so I serve on our department's um, residency admission committee, and I'm also the director of medical student education. So I actually meet with every student in our department who's interested in ophthalmology, and I help guide them and mentor them. So it it is a competitive subspecialty. Um, There's different things that we look at. So, you know, um, preclinical year grades are important. Um, Obviously, step scores, step one score is going to be going away soon. So it will be step two. 
Um, and then, you know, of course, we look for involvement. Um, so we want to see that students are really dedicated and passionate about the field. Um, so involvement in research projects, volunteering, um, those types of things are really important. But the things that, you know, I look for most when I'm screening applications is, you know, everybody looks great on paper, right? We see a lot of medical students apply and many of them have great scores and good grades and their AOA. Um, what I'm looking for is I want a physician who's going to be compassionate and well-rounded and, you know, be an advocate for their patients. And, you know, I pay a lot of attention to things like letters of recommendation, um, the clinical years um, comments and grades, um, things like gold humanism, um, and then the interviews, you know, just talking to the applicants and making sure that they can communicate if they can, you know, have a conversation and communicate with me, I know they're going to be able to communicate well with patients. Um, so those are the things that I find most important. But, you know, it, it is one of the more competitive subspecialties. Um, but for students that are interested, I would say, you know, get involved as early as possible. You know, even first and second years will come and shadow me in clinic. Um, first years will work with me. You know, we have a research program where um, students between their first and second year will work with someone in our department. Um, and volunteering vision screenings, those are great ways to get involved. Yeah, awesome. Just just for a point of clarification for someone who doesn't know, AOA is Alpha Omega Alpha, the Medical Honor Society. Got to got to do well in school to uh, in medical school to get that. Um, my my wife's AOA. I I was not unfortunately. Yeah, um, I, I wasn't either. Yeah. But, um, I was in cold humanism, so I thought that was important. Yes. Anything that osteopathic students applying to your specific program, if, if they need to do anything or if you kind of view DOMD equally in the app admissions process? Yeah, so I would say that we view the DO and MD applicants equally and that, you know, I when I'm looking at the candidates, I'm looking at a really holistic approach in terms of their application, their grades, their personal statement, their background, and if they're a good physician. Um, and so, you know, what medical school they come from, there's also actually um, several medical schools that don't have a home ophthalmology program. And um, they don't have a Department of Ophthalmology residency program within their medical school. And so I, you know, as the clerkship director, I really sought to accommodate these students and welcome them to rotate with us. Mm. And, you know, I'm writing letters of recommendation for several students that have come to our department that don't have a home department. So I feel that every student, no matter what school they come from and whether their school has a Department of Ophthalmology, um, should really seek out those opportunities, whether it's doing away rotations. Um, I would, my biggest advice would be to find a mentor within ophthalmology, even if it's not at your home institution, because mentorship and support can go a long way. And that's something that, you know, we have formal mentoring programs within ophthalmology. Um, there's also a wonderful program called the MOM program. It's uh, Minorities in Ophthalmology Mentoring. And this is a program for medical students and even for under undergraduates that can get involved. 
um, where we'll set students up with a mentor and offer support advice and encouragement and kind of guide you throughout the application process. Um, and you can find that information on the American Academy of Ophthalmology website. It's called the MOM program. Interesting. Okay. What do you know now that you wish you knew before going into pediatric ophthalmology? What do I know now going in hmm, think about this? Um, I would say one thing, when I came directly out of training, so I've, I've been practicing, you know, as an attending for six years now. And so when I first came out of training, I was gung-ho and wanted to do everything, tackle the most complex um, procedures. And um, I found that there were certain procedures or certain fields that were very stressful um, and that there were super subspecialists who can do those. So over time, I sort of learned to let go of some of the things that I found stressful or uncomfortable or difficult to manage. So one, one example is, you know, in fellowship, I trained taking care of a pediatric glaucoma disease, and that's very rare disease. The surgeries are very complex. And when I started practicing, I joined the Department of Ophthalmology and my partner was very enthusiastic about pediatric glaucoma. She just does research in it. She enjoys it. And we really only see this condition a few times a year. And I said, well, you know, I find this very challenging, very complex. And I think it's better to have one person in such a rare disease devote all of their time and energy into managing these patients and get really good at it. So I learned to let go and, you know, leave some things um, and kind of divide and conquer. So, you know, I like to deal with adult um, stir business and really complex eye muscle disorders. My partner, Dr. Alexander, is fantastic with pediatric glaucomas. Um, and so I've learned, you know, when, when I first came out, I felt that I needed to do everything. And then over time, I've sort of learned to let go of a few things or to refer certain um, conditions or surgeries. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think uh, I had a conversation uh, with a transplant surgeon a couple of weeks ago, and he said COVID actually helped these these surgeons out there doing transplant surgery to rely on other people because now with with covid restrictions and this and that hospitals weren't letting the transplant teams come in and so uh what has historically been i'm the only one that knows how to take out a kidney and then transport it across the country and then put it in is now okay i'm gonna let you take it out and i'm gonna trust that you know what you're doing uh and so it's it's interesting what has been out there to to allow physicians to release a little bit of, of this God complex that we, we need a little bit, right? Because we're doing these fantastic things with people. Uh, but it, it also helps us hopefully help, um, help ourselves by asking for help and, and realizing that there are people out there who can help us. Absolutely. I think that is a great way to put it. So, you know, learning how to rely on others and not feel that you have to have the whole weight on, on your shoulders, weight of the world on your shoulders. And, um, you know, know that you have fantastic colleagues that you can turn to and, and rely on. Yeah. What, what do you like the most about being a pediatric ophthalmologist? 
Um, so I, one of my favorites, I, I talked about all the different types of patients that I see, you know, ranging from, you know, teeny tiny newborn infants to older adults with double vision. And I find all of those things very rewarding, but my most rewarding patient experiences are with teenagers, you know, specifically, um, teenage girls. I feel that eye misalignment, um, yes, it causes double vision, double vision is miserable. Um, but having, you know, everyone, um, out there listening has seen a patient that has an eye misalignment. Um, and it's something that you immediately notice, especially now during COVID, everybody is masking and you're looking at, at their eyes. And so, you know, picture a teenage girl, you know, having a drifted eye. A lot of these teenagers, they come in, they have low self-confidence. They're sort of looking down. They're not making eye contact. They have, you know, their hair covering their face. And after the eye muscle surgery, they're like a whole new person. They have this new confidence. They're looking you in the eye, you know, and, and I find, you know, just seeing the joy and the satisfaction with helping those teenagers be confident um, and make that eye contact to be my favorite part of the job and the most rewarding type of patient for me. What do you like the least? So crying children, I guess, in <laughs> any field in pediatrics, of course, you're going to make babies cry. It's not pleasant. You know, pediatricians are going to give shots and, you know, do all kinds of procedures. Um, you know, there's kind of a sweet spot. So you have these tiny little infants that are sweet and they're very easy to examine. And then you have the older kids that I can, you know, talk to them about Paw Patrol or, you know, what's your favorite cartoon? And I've learned to sing all the Disney songs, but there's like this, this age, you know, um, I think two to four year olds and I, and I have a two year old. So, you know, I'm very experienced with this. Sometimes, you know, you just can't reason with them and they don't understand what's going on and they're screaming and crying. And um, so sometimes it can be very challenging. You know, you're holding down a kid and putting drops in. Um, and so, you know, making kids cry is not the fun part. But I will say this. I had children that would scream and cry and throw themselves on the floor every time they would see me. And those kids grow up. And, you know, the most satisfying thing is when a little kid who hated coming in for their eye exams will run in and give me a hug and, you know, give me a valent. One of my little guys, Gabriel, you know, used to hate his eye exams and he came in and gave me a Valentine's Day card and I have it in, in my office. So, you know, those little screaming, crying kids will get used to you. Um, and, you know, sometimes it takes patience and a couple appointments to kind of gain their trust. Um, so, you know, I've been referred patients that other eye doctors have been like, oh, it's impossible to examine them. We might need to you know, give them anesthesia to do, you know, some patients with developmental delay who might become combative or, you know, have difficulty. But what I found is that if you can spend some time, it might take a couple appointments to gain their trust. Um, but I'll do tricks like, you know, come in right after nap time, um, give the parents dilating drops, put the drops in at home, you know, sneak them in while they're asleep. And when they come in to see me, we don't have to hold them down and do drops. Um, so, you know, sometimes it just takes time to gain their trust. Um, but, um, I, I, yeah, I would definitely say that, that, you know, making kids cry is not my favorite part of the job. Yeah. 
what final words of wisdom do you have for the student listening to this who is is particularly interested in pediatric ophthalmology? Um, so I would say for students who are interested in pediatric ophthalmology, um, you are always welcome to spend time with a pediatric ophthalmologist, um, shadow in clinic and the operating room. Um, see if it's what you really like to do. So to do a pediatric ophthalmology fellowship, you first do ophthalmology, right? So you're going to be um, working with adults, doing cataract surgery, all of those um, procedures. So spend time doing ophthalmology, um, get that early exposure, participate in service projects, um, and then just explore. And, you know, I feel like going through medical school even if you come in thinking, I want to be an ophthalmologist, um, you know, I, you're dead set on one thing or an orthopedic surgeon like Dr. Gray, you know, initially was before you had your, your career path change, go in with an open mind. I almost feel that for students not going into ophthalmology, the rotation is even more important because that's the only chance they're going to get to learn about ophthalmology, right? So I have tracks in my rotation. Students going into emergency medicine are going to deal with emergency eye conditions. Um, you know, doctors in primary care and pediatrics or family practice are going to see patients coming in with eye concerns, patients with, uh, or uh, students going into neurology. There's a lot of overlap between neurology and ophthalmology. So I think there is, it's, you know, super important because whatever field you do in medicine, you know, from anesthesia, maybe not urology, but, you know, most other fields, you're going to run into patients with eye complaints. And so, you know, really taking the time to learn about it is, is important. It will, it's an area that a lot of um, doctors don't have a high comfort level, level with, and, you know, really familiarize yourself with, with the eye. All right, there you have it. Again, Dr. Ronnie Levin, if you're interested in pediatric ophthalmology, go check out aapos.org. That's the American Association for Pediatric Ophthalmology and Strabismus. Again, that's aapos.org. I hope you have a great week. I hope this was a great episode for you to help expose you to more subspecialties out there. Again, I hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. Specialty Stories. 